Um, I don't want to assume anything about anybody that's here or watching online. And so when I think about the subject that we're hitting today, I want to give a little bit of a backdrop. Um, Israel was and is God's chosen people. And so as you read through the story of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you see these references to this nation, this people of Israel. And there's a a critical time in Israel's history in the Old Testament where a king was introduced. And the first king was a guy named King Saul. And that didn't go so well, I'll let you read about it. But there's a point in time when uh, Saul is removed from that role as king and a man named David is put on the throne. And when he is placed there, Uh, All of Israel begins to gather around him. The tribes of Israel send their leaders, their mighty men, their warriors to establish him, to inaugurate him as king. And so in uh, the book of 1 Chronicles, there is this list of this powerful collective. And there's a tribe mentioned amidst all of that activity. It's the tribe of Issachar. And um, it, it contains a reference to them that's not said about any other tribe, but it's something that really does stand out. The men of that tribe were said to have understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, I will say, I think there's a real temptation to exaggerate that, that little reference to the tribe of Issachar, and so we don't wanna do that, others have. But we also don't want just to, just to fly right by it as if it didn't say what it said. Apparently, there was a tribe, there was a group of men around David who understood the world around them with a lens of, from God's perspective. And their understanding of all of that really helped guide Israel in what they ought to do in a broken, sin-wrecked world. And I would say, if we're looking around today, and in one sense, this is always true, but there is a need for God's people to have a timely wisdom about the day in which we live and the issues that swirl around us and the conflict that's going on. We need wisdom and discernment around the activity of God around the chaos of the world and of how we are called to navigate all of that in a God-honoring way. In the midst of all this confusion, um, we as a church, we want to try to seek that kind of understanding from God's word. In a sense, the Bible is our men of Issachar to help us understand the world around us. And as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, we typically just make our way through books of the Bible. We preach and teach those in context. We think that's the best way to understand what God has to say to us. But there are occasions when it's wise for us to think about topics biblically and to look at kind of the whole of scriptures and say, what do those say to us about this or that topic? And so as the elder team met, we thought, um, 
we want to tackle some topics um, in the coming years. And so we're going to begin a series that we just simply call Clarity. And the purpose of that series is to take a topic and really drill down into what does all of the scriptures say about that. And as you probably have heard, we're going to first tackle the topic of identity from a biblical perspective. And I'm not sure there's many topics that uh, surface more angst and agitation than that in our culture. Now, the funny thing about the topic of identity We talk about it as if, like, hasn't everybody always talked about that? But the term and our understanding of the term is really very recent. It's probably in the 1950s that in academic circles, they began to talk about this subject of identity. And and then it's been an ongoing, developing conversation. But we're going to tackle it uh, over the next three weeks. I want to point to a, a few resources that I have been immersed in, and I'm sure Jeff and Rob as well. Um, but the first is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Here's three books uh, by Carl Truman. And I would say I haven't come across anybody yet that has spent as much time, maybe other than Brian Rossner, um, thinking about this perspective uh, from a biblically informed position. So Carl is a theologian, he's a scholar, he's a pastor, and, uh, and a historian, and provides great insight around how to think about this subject of identity. And then Brian Rossner is also a scholar and a pastor. He wrote How to Find Yourself, that's one of the titles, and then another one, Known by God, both which speak to a biblical understanding of identity. So I, th- I commend those to you. Biblically informed clarity around the subject of identity will do four things for us, at least four things. First of all, it helps us avoid counterfeit sources of identity. And there's a whole lot of those if you didn't know it. A lot of places where we can go to try and define who we are. Secondly, it helps us avoid fruitless debate around peripheral Issues, And I'll say just for myself personally, the temptation has been to go after particular issues of the day that are subsets of this one. And we argue about those things, whether that's on social media or around the workplace or with a neighbor. I mean, wherever we go, we fight about things that really aren't the thing. And I think this is the thing. I think if we get clarity about this, it really resolves a lot of other questions that we might have about the issues of the day. Third, and this is so important going forward for the church, biblically informed clarity around the subject of identity fortifies us in the face of cultural animosity. The days when your culture applauds Anything about what you believe are over. Just accept that. Doesn't mean that we don't engage our culture, that we don't have conversation. But if you're looking for somebody to pat you on the back and applaud your thinking, I just don't know if I I will ever see that again in my lifetime. But I have to be okay with that. Otherwise, 
I'm gonna spend all of my time trying to persuade everybody just to think what I think. And I'm gonna argue a bunch about a bunch of different things rather than, I loved what Tori and Matt said about their ministry in Uganda. It's the gospel. That's what we're called to preach is we bring the gospel again and again and again and it forms all of life rather than arguing about a bunch of issues and then taking it personally when the world doesn't like what I have to say. Lastly, it captivates us with a vision of becoming every bit of who God created us to be. And I would say the the more grounded we are in that, the more we can just present Christ to the world and then let the chips fall where they may. So with that said, what is identity? There's been an ongoing revolution around society's understanding of the nature of human identity and personhood. And, And I think from Truman's writings, it's centuries long and it's a philosophical process of development. I would urge you to think carefully about that. According to psychology today, identity is the memories, experiences, relationships, and values that create one's sense of self. Now, I just want to highlight the fact that psychology today is telling us that your identity is really a matter of your sense of who you are. Right away, that completely leaves what I would say I understand to be a biblical understanding of identity because it really doesn't matter what my sense of who I am is. What really matters is what God's sense is of who I am. That's what we wanna get at and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Nevertheless, a 2015 survey was done that said 91% of adults in the U.S., 91% of adults in the U.S. agreed that the best way to find yourself is to look inside yourself. Carl Truman says this, the notions that human flourishing is found primarily in an inner sense of well-being, that authenticity is found by being able to act outwardly as one feels inwardly, and that who we are is largely a matter of personal choice, not external imposition, are intuitions we all share. So we should start by saying, I'm not talking about them. I am talking about us. It's so subtle and it's so easy for us to land in this place of an understanding of who we are, our selfhood, our our personhood, our identity, and still think that The world's got it wrong and we've got it all right. We've got plenty to work on right here. Uh, No doubt you've heard it said, uh, follow your heart. You do you. Be true to yourself. And those statements raise some questions for me. Is there such a thing as a self-made self? 
What is the self? And how do you know if you're being true to it? Trevin Wax asks these questions. Are you most truly yourself in your best moments or your worst? Is the real you the person you want to become or the person you are right now? Those are worth some consideration. Most of our cultural concept of identity is grounded in the deeply rooted values of autonomy, intuition, recognition, pleasure, and power. And one thing you should notice about all of those things is they are primarily subjective in their orientation. In other words, it's not an objective truth about me from the outside. It's what I decide things are and aren't. Transcendence, culturally speaking, has been displaced by a fixation on the finite, the limited, the immediate, the secular. You might say there's a a huge gap between transcendence and what is transient. We have shifted from a theocentric worldview, generally speaking, to an egocentric worldview. Again, I'm going to quote him several times, but Truman says, Western culture has shifted away from viewing the world as endowed with meaning, purpose, direction, and boundaries and toward viewing the world as having raw materials dedicated to the private use of individuals for their personal fulfillment. We are conditioned to consume, and it colors all of life. Everything that we do, we just generally understand that it's a product of our personal choice. And we order things in our lives so that we feel personally fulfilled. And the only reason that we're able to do that is because of this cultural moment in which we live. If you look throughout all of history, people had far less ability to manipulate their world so that they would feel good. But that is the test of prosperity. Social structures are increasingly viewed as hindrances to personal authenticity. So in other words, I want to just be me and declare it to the world, and I expect the world to accommodate that, to even recognize and applaud that about me. It sounds something like, I am who and or what I want to be without any regard for external authority of any kind. My truth is the truth. That doesn't really work if all of us have a different truth, does it? Truman says the self is today one of primarily psychological construction. We think of ourselves in terms of our inner convictions, our feelings. We consequently interpret the purpose and meaning of our lives in line with this, seeing, for example, happiness in terms of an inner sense of psychological well-being. 
This is what sociologist Philip Reef dubbed psychological man and what Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre called the expressive individual. Those are terms and phrases you probably ought to become familiar with because they do describe this cultural moment and the ones living in it. As you might expect, the primary grounds for identity then are from an inward orientation rather than an outward. And when that is the case, cultural chaos is inevitable. I think sometimes maybe you feel this way too. I'm a little bit surprised by all of the churn and animosity that I see, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter. And you kind of go like a phrase from long ago, can't we all just get along? Well, we can't if my truth is the truth, even if it completely contradicts your truth. We can't just get along because at some point we have to decide how are we going to live together, not just as individuals. Truman says a psychological notion of selfhood that places inner needs, desires, feelings, and convictions at the core of its notion of human purpose inevitably tends towards social fragmentation. So, the church, what do we do in the midst of all of that? Paul calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar and the buttress of the truth. We're called to live out what God says is true of our identity, regardless of what anyone anywhere outside of the church says. So in some ways, there's a little bit of a revolution that we could be a part of. And it's not to overthrow anyone. It's not for the purpose of power. It's for the purpose of influence. It's to offer the world a different way, a way that leads to life, not death. Now, the Bible says a lot about identity, even though it doesn't actually use that term. It's very, very helpful. And this morning and then the next two Sundays, we're going to look at what does the Bible say about our identity. I want to offer a definition to begin with, and then we'll go from there. Identity is the composition of intrinsic personal attributes which constitute dignity, purpose, and belonging. Let me work through that kind of a step at a time. When I say the composition, what that means is two things. First of all, it means that when you compose something, you make it, right? So our identity is composed just not by us, but by our creator. We'll see that in a moment. And then it also says there are multiple aspects. So our, our identity is complex, but it can be understood. Intrinsic means it is true of us completely apart of, from our awareness of it. So I discover my identity, and I'm not just sort of going, how do I feel about who I think I am? But I'm saying, Lord, show me who I am, and I will order my thoughts and feelings around that truth, that objective truth. 
So a composition of intrinsic personal attributes. We are, we are personal people. We're not machines, right? So it's personal And these attributes that we discover, which have been given to us, those constitute dignity, why we matter, purpose, why we're here, and belonging. And that's the idea of knowing and being known. Those things are essential to life in this world that God has made. Now, this definition doesn't incorporate every possible aspect of identity. I think it's also helpful to think of maybe tiers of significance. This would be the the uppermost tier that we need to understand. Certainly, there are a lot of other factors of who we are that, that would fall under that, but they are under that. This definition and what we're talking about over these three weeks focuses on those aspects of our being that are true regardless of transient things like vocation, geography, preferences, or social status. What we're trying to get at is the core durable aspects of who we are, regardless of what roles or responsibilities we might have in life. It's like these would be the things that are true of all of us, regardless of where we find ourselves in this world. So let's start at the start. Genesis 1, verses particularly 26 through 28. And I'll tell you at this point, Um, Jeff and I are in some ways doing a part one and a part two. We're going to use this same passage, but we'll emphasize different aspects of it. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Generally speaking, we come away from this passage and say, simply to, be, to, to have an identity from a creation perspective is to be made in the image or likeness of God. And that is to say that we were made with capacities that resemble or reflect our creator. The most helpful illustration I've ever heard is that of a monument. And so you think about a great king or a a famous person or whatever, and they create a sculpture and they place that for other people to see. And we're not meant to marvel at the sculpture. We're meant to marvel at the one who the sculpture represents, So in the same way, for us to be made in God's image after his likeness is to say we're to represent God in some form or fashion so that when people interface with us, they're reminded of the one who made us. 
We're not exactly like him, not even close. But there's enough resemblance where someone would, would see that and go, huh, and get a sense of what God is like. There are three capacities that I want to highlight. I think these cover the scope of it pretty well. Our capacities are we are relational, we are rational, and we are regal. When I say we're relational, it means that we correspond physically, emotionally, and spiritually to one another and to God. We were made relationally, which means at the very basis of it all, we were not made to live in isolation. And isn't it interesting? That's exactly what God said about Adam when he was all by himself. It was not good that he was alone. Certainly, he needed a helper, Eve, corresponding to him. But even more than that, he was created if he's an image bearer and you have a father, son, and spirit who represent a community, a relational community, then he was made for community. And to not be in that, to not engage in that is to be contrary to how he was made. Secondly, rational. We have the, the ability to think critically, to gain wisdom and discernment. We are not instinctual like the animal kingdom. That's how that all works, right? Animals don't process the pros and cons of things. They just act out of instinct. And when we act out of instinct, we act more like animals than image bearers. We were made to be rational. Thirdly, we were made to be regal. Uh, you could use the word glorious or magnificent. Uh, the scriptures give us this idea we were the pinnacle of creation. It's like all that God made was leading up to this moment when there would be one walking in the midst of creation that would actually remind all of creation of the one who made it all. Now, some will attach dominion, which is referenced here, to identity, as if that's actually part of our identity. And I think I would say that dominion seems to speak more of what we do than who we are. And what we do is a working out of who we are. So it's not that they're not attached to one another, but to say that your identity is dominion, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't really register with me as much as to say, I am relational, rational, and regal. I represent, I reflect the image of my creator. And part of the way that I express that is through God-given dominion over what he has made. Now, speaking of being made, I love the psalmist's reflection upon that in Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. So if we're thinking about identity and we're thinking about being made by our creator, this is helpful to say, regardless of what I think about myself or anyone else, the the reality is God was weaving each and every one of us together. And the psalmist says, that is a fearful and wonderful thing, probably even beyond our full comprehension. But you do start to pick up the idea of dignity here. That regardless of what I might see externally in you, God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are magnificent in his eyes, regardless of what anyone or anywhere might say about their impression of you. Do you see how that truth begins to trump any other truth that you or anyone else might think about you? Because if you're like me, I can, I can think too much of myself and I can think too little. But none of that defines who I really am in terms of before my God. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not self-made. A critical distinction. Psalm 8, 4 through 8, says that we were made with responsibility. The psalmist there asks this question, What is man speaking to God that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. A few things there. First of all, this passage we just studied in Hebrews, the the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage as a reference to Christ. So certainly it is true of him, but the psalmist was also genuinely referencing himself before God. And he has this thought, knowing himself, God, in light of Everything that you've made in all the universe, the stars and the planets and the, and the trees and the animals and like all of this stuff, why would you ever give me a thought? Unless I was kind of the point of it all. Like you meant for me to display you to all that you have made. That'd be a great reason for God to have a thought of us. And we're not just one among a billion different things that he made, but a central core thing. And then this idea of dominion, responsibility. Why would God share that with us unless it helped us to better understand who he truly is? And what he's like. 
Dominion here points to the Genesis language of fill and subdue. So we have a work to do. Once again, though, this isn't subjectively decided. You and I just don't get to decide, this is how I want to live my life without any regard for what God might want for my life, right? See the difference there? But we're conditioned to think about what do I want to do? What do I enjoy doing? What is my passion? And it's not that those questions are irrelevant. It's the order of things. It's to start with, God, you made me. What do you want for my life? And then I order my life accordingly. The idea here is that we are vice regents or stewards of God's creation. A vice regent is a person who acts in the place of a ruler or a governor or a sovereign. At the foundational level, we can't form a concept of identity apart from the stewardship given humanity since the dawn of creation. You were made to rule over what God has made as his representative regardless of what your vocation or calling might be. I'm sure many of you have already thought, but what about the fall? How did that affect our identity, our personhood, the idea of self? Adam and Eve chose independence over dependence. Read Genesis 3, which once again, isn't it interesting? We're talking about identity And God expected for his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, to live dependently, and yet they chose to act independently, to go their own way, to do what they thought was right versus uh, doing what God said was right. After the fall, you you can write down the image or likeness of God was defaced, but not erased. So humans didn't cease to bear God's image. It was just obscured, tainted by sin and our own fallenness. You can just jot these down, Genesis 5, 1 through 3, Genesis 9, 6, and then James 3, 8, and 9, all of which represent, again, the image of God. They speak of that being the same thing that you would have found in the garden after the moment of creation, but again, tainted by the fallenness of humanity. The fall of humanity sets in motion this beautiful progress of redemption that God instituted. Colossians 3 specifically ties our salvation to the restoration of God's image in us. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's where we're headed. That's the vision piece. When you and I understand identity, we understand that whatever God put in me to reflect who he is, that is what he is cultivating Uh, progressively over the course of my life. And when I go to be with him, I will reflect his image as he intended perfectly. 
What a day that will be. Uh, I want to mention again the resource Known by God by Brian Rossner. He talks about understanding our image and our identity in terms of what it means to be known by God. It's an interesting uh, insight and perspective. Lastly, and I'll wrap up with this, there is such a thing as identity formation, but once again, it's not your project to form yourself. Actually, yours and my responsibility is to cooperate with the forming, sanctifying work of God in us as we're walking our way through life. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That's going to be week three. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Identity formation is not the work we do to create our own identity. It is the work God does in us to align our lives with the identity he established for us. So I, I, as I wrap up today and we ask a question, so what? It feels to me like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we, we could do months around this subject and really mining what God has to say about who we are. Um, but at the very least, these are some key passages to begin with to understand from God's perspective. What does he say is true about us? We've got to start there before we attempt to understand anything else about who we are and who we're not. So here's a few questions. Where have you sought out counterfeit sources for your identity? What are those things that you look to to find dignity and purpose and belonging apart from what God says is true? Where have you engaged in fruitless debate about lesser things and been distracted from the main thing? How are you dealing with cultural animosity? How might you grow in your resilience in that regard? And then lastly, how's your vision around who God created you to be? I want to invite you to ask the Lord to highlight wherever it is you might need to grow in your understanding of being made in God's image and commissioned to care for all that he has made. Take a moment and pray about that and then I'll close us.
Let's pray. Father, I confess uh, feeling a little overwhelmed by uh, this subject and the idea of truly understanding who we are. And uh, Lord, I just, I don't want to think my thoughts. I want to think your thoughts. But I want my understanding to be shaped by your word and not by my culture. Lord, I want to, I want to be the image bearer that you have called me to be and I trust that we're all sitting here this morning with that desire and, and, and maybe feeling a little bit like gosh how do we do that Lord would you help us but Lord would you use us as you originally intended to be this beautiful reflection of a loving father who made humanity for relationship first and foremost with him. And Lord, might that be a great source of encouragement and hope in a world that is dying. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your grace that you lavish on us each and every day. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.